one. Good morning, everyone there out there in Facebook land and in the house. Give me a sound that you guys are here. Help me out. Okay, can you guys hear that out there in Facebook land? You probably can't, but that's okay. We're big enough to make a, a noise and shout it out. We're excited to be here because we are not going to be held back for what God has for us and we are excited about what the Lord is going to continue to do in our midst. Um, as we continue down this road of this new sermon series entitled, Let's Talk About Race, we have unfortunately been experiencing a very challenging time, as we mentioned in the last 12 to 13, 14 weeks. But now we are reengaging in a long road ahead of us, as well as we've been dealing with something that has been around for many, many years. And we can't ignore it as the church. We cannot sit back and hope it goes away. It will not go away. We as a church have to decide, because I'm grateful for the universal church all across the nation and around the world that's standing up against this sin. And it's, and it's, existing, it's an existing here in our nation. There have been protests all around the world. But this is a challenge to us because this is a challenge for the Imagu Day. This is a challenge for biblical justice. This is a challenge for the gospel. As the church, we have to stand for the gospel. And it's important for us to gather that. Last week, I talked about perspective and how each one of us has a perspective. And so with that perspective, it's not wrong. It's just a perspective. And with each of us, we also have what I call a lens, a cultural lens. And we have a Christian lens. And a Christian lens would identify a biblical lens because what I'm talking about with Christian is not you as an individual more than I'm talking about the Christian being the content of faith, the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus. That in itself is called a Christian lens. And so we want to talk about this week how important it is for us, what is it about this lens and does it need to be replaced? So as I entitled this sermon, Replacing the Old lens. What is this old lens? Well, I'm going to say that it may be the cultural lens. And so as we talk about it, let's, let's just think about it for just a minute. You know, I asked the question, what is your cultural lens? We have a paternal and maternal. We have two sides. As you're growing up, you have a father's side and a mother's side, and you have family. And each one is different, but they come together as one to create the family. And we know that God has created the family. But then you, you ask the question. There's some questions to ask to understand your lens. Did you grow up with a mother and a father in the home? Did you live in a single-parent home? We know that the breakdown of the family has been one of the issues that we have been facing throughout um, our nation for many years now. We think that's one of the bigger problems that, that exists around us. Not only do we have sin and all kinds of sin, but we have the breakdown of the family where many are fatherless today than we would like to admit. And it goes across all cultures. And then we're talking about is there divorce in your family? That creates another lens. And then is there abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse? That will, too, begin to fog up your lens. But it's a lens. And each one of us has to understand that. See, a cultural lens defines as one who has beliefs, values, customs, traditions, heritage, and our language, artistic expressions. So most of these practices are all that affect our behavior. 
So as we have the lens, you got your lens, and then all of a sudden you have to understand that that affects who you are and how you act. Let me give you a short understanding of that. As I've explained for many weeks now and now a year with you is that I'm Italian. And with an Italian lens, I'm not separated from my culture. It's very close. I told you for many times, my parents immigrated here in 1964. And in our culture, I was brought up with a lens that the husband and the... And, course, if you're a son or a boy, you would sit back. You, they, the wives, the moms, the sisters, they would provide the food. They would put the food together, place it on the table. We would eat belch, go sit down and watch a football game or a basketball game or, or a baseball game, any kind of game. And we would belch and lay back while mom and the sisters and all of them are working hard in the kitchen and cleaning everything up. See, I grew up where two older brothers, my father, four men, and, a, and my mom, my mom would do everything. She'd fix the bed, and she would do everything. We would just sit back and enjoy the ride. But here was the problem. When I got married, my wife, who is also Italian, her parents are from, my in-laws are from Italy, I thought that was going to carry on into our marriage. I thought, okay, well, I'll sit back. She does all the cooking and the cleaning and everything else. I sit back, I eat, I belch, and I go watch my TV shows. And she's like, nothing's changed. But here's the thing. I realized that and within a year or two, we had to talk about that. Joy was like, we need to talk. Because while she was working hard, I realized that my cultural lens needed to adjust to a Christian lens. <laughs> because that's not right to make my wife do all that work while I sit back. So I started to learn how to clean some dishes, although I don't do a whole lot of them. But I like to clean, though. Love to vacuum. My son, he was even making fun of me the other day. He was up here, and he was uh, cleaning because he works here at the church. He goes, who do I remind you of? And I said, who? He goes, you. <laughs> and he's sitting there cleaning. So it's all this, and it's like, uh, yeah, I like to clean. I'm a clean freak. But it wasn't like that when I was younger because my lens had to adjust just a little bit. And I'm just sharing that example in just a small way. So all you husbands out there that feel convicted right now, good, because you need to help your wife. I'm learning that as well. But with lenses, this is the thing. What's your cultural lens? How does it affect you? Here's another question. Are there any people groups? Let's talk about race. You were taught implicitly or explicitly to avoid dislike or outright hate. That's a tough question. You know, you might have been growing up in a home with your parents in your home. What were you taught? You know, what shows did you watch? I know growing up, um, you know, I'm a little bit older. Some of you might be, you know, a little bit older than me. Some of you might be younger than me. But we grew up where there was all in the family. In a time where it was a racial discriminating time, very difficult with civil rights, with the violence and the protests and people being mistreated, they put out a show called All in the Family in the early 70s. And then from there, you had Archie and Edith Bunker with all their views, their political views. They're all stated. It was done in, in a comedy sense, but it was still, it was trying to alleviate some of the struggles, but yet it was, it was being taught as we watch it. We're being fed with this information. And the Jeffersons, you know, with George and Wheezy, I mean, they had their end. It was racial on one end and racial on another end. And so they would make their comments and laugh about it. And it was joking. And, and you know, you see movies and you see media, so your lens is being affected by all of this. And, you know, Sanford and Son, again, the lens is being affected by this. The movies in which we watch, the lens are being affected by that. Even black people were making fun of each other. The lens are being affected. And all of this, you see the new, even the new shows, Last Man Standing, it's a, sometimes going to be political. And you have Blackish, that's a show. All of these things that are going on, it's a lens that affects who we are in our home. 
And sometimes it can be taught to us and we don't realize that. But that's something to discuss. But what are your parents saying? What are the people in your home saying? What comments are making to shape your views and your lens? Were there any people groups that were mentioned that spoke against? Again, I'm just saying that affects our cultural lens. And this can be, it can be implicit. And in our brains, we believe it's acceptable when it's, there's comedy involved. We say, oh, it's just pretend. It's not really, we don't have to believe it. But then it affects us. And it starts to get a bit serious in our minds because there are implicit biases where, which are unconscious and explicit biases which are conscious because there's stereotypes and attitudes that lead to specific behaviors. Remember I talked about last week about cats are all dangerous and about the chicken and the cat. We start to say this. I, will, I have never met a cat that wasn't dangerous, and therefore I will not make an intentional effort to spend any intimate time with a cat because I am not safe around a cat. Now, I'm going to tell you whatever, if that is meant between races, between black and white, or whatever you would do, I really don't like to be near cats. Sometimes they have little claws and they can scratch you. So a literal cat, I'm careful because if they get mean, they can, they can you know, scratch you. But whatever the case is, we start to create a bias that leads to prejudice. And a bias that sticks with us. And we don't even realize it. So we live in, a, in, in such a great polarized society. We have Democrat versus Republican. Re- left versus right. Black versus white. Liberal versus conservative. Christian versus non-Christian. We're placed in a world where if we disagree, then we must hate the person. <laughs> we live in such a polarized society. What would it look like if we could disagree with someone yet still show honor to a person? I mean, we're driven in politics from that. If, you, if I disagree with you because of your politics, now I'm branding you as an enemy. And if I brand you as an enemy, you know what we do when we treat enemies and how we treat enemies. But I have many brothers and sisters, many who are opposite of me and my political party, but are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll agree to disagree. And we'll have uncomfortable discussions, but we'll have good discussions. But then I'll love on them and care for them and care for them and honor them. Very close people in my life I consider family, but we may disagree politically. But that's okay because my lens culturally should never shape in who I am. Politically speaking, I should never allow it to hijack who I am in Jesus Christ. But we are in this world of polarization, and we decide which side we do, and then we just call someone out in our minds. And it could be unbiased that it's implicit. We don't even realize we're doing it because we think that we're standing up for the gospel. And that's why I was talking about last week, we have to be careful that our political lens is not fogged up from our Christian lens because it's our cultural lens that can hijack us and we don't even realize it. And that's why it's hard for us when we have disagreements with one another in our people groups, let alone with other people groups, we don't know how to do this well because we see the social media is on fire. It's not helping the cause because we categorize and generalize and we make an attempt. We have no attempt at making any kind of conversation that could lead to a relationship. We can actually find that talking to someone who thinks differently than us could actually be intriguing and even mind-boggling and even possibly expanding us and getting us to understand and learn. We have to do that. Another question. What prejudice or racial biases were, you, were passed to you? Researchers state that the prejudice and racial biases could be passed to their children, not based on what they say, but their behavior toward other cultures. 
So, for example, a parent could make a comment about a certain people group, generally speaking, when a child longs to be loved and accepted by their parents, they will agree with their parents even though they don't fully understand the effects of it as, at a young age. So they'll just grab onto it. It'll be passed on to them. And again, it's, it's, it's a bias that can be implicit, that could lead to explicit. And so if a parent speaks negatively, negatively about a certain people group, then prejudice is being taught to the children. And the children's lens is being created at home. It could be intentional, and the parent believes he or she is actually, get this, their children, they're actually protecting their children from another people group. And really, they might be hurting them. We don't even realize that. And also, they're teaching their children lies because not all people group in certain groups, they should claim he or she. I want to tell you something. I'm going to share again being vulnerable with you. My father spoke very strongly against Americans. That's all I heard growing up in my house. Americans this, Americans that, always negatively putting them down. We used to make comments to him saying, Dad, if you don't like it, go back to Italy. And then my mother goes, we're not going back. I'm not letting him take me back there. But my, mom, my dad would speak very negative comments, demeaning and even, I would call it racial um, discrimination. And what, guess what happened to me? I started talking like that. Americans this, Americans that. I started to create a lens that was as Italian only. Do you know I told you last week, I look at the American flag and I don't see it. Although I'm an American, born American, true blue, red, white, and blue. But when I see the flag, I see an Italian flag because of my father and how he would make comments and it would make me think that, hey, you know what? Americans are not that good. God had to bring me through that. That was a lens that God had to change in me. Proud to be an American. I'm very proud of my heritage because God created it in me, and he created me to be an Italian. But these are biases. They're taught and passed along, and we don't even realize it. I didn't even realize it. As a young person, I didn't think there was anything to it. I got to the point where I was getting angry at my father for trying to pass that on to me when I got older. But now, through that, God had a switch in saying, I'm grateful for who he created me to be. It was a battle, and each one of us has to understand that these are choices that most would make. To make my father a bad person, no, he was just proud of being Italian. He was inferior here. He couldn't speak English. He didn't know what to do, and he was just angry that he couldn't speak. He was down on himself before he was down on anyone else. Here's another thing. According to your cultural lens, whichever it is, how should other people groups be treated? See, I just think our cultural lens makes, make truly affect how we treat people. If we let our politics, our family's view of certain people, our values, our norms, and our traditions determine how we should treat people, this would be a risky and possibly dangerous step. We need to evaluate our cultural lens and determine if the lens needs to be replaced. As believers, we cannot allow our political lens to determine how we treat people because it will ultimately be contrary to our Christian lens. If we filter everything through a political lens, everyone who disagrees with us will become an enemy. They'll become an enemy. And we know how we treat our enemies. So it's important for us to gather. So as we look at the Old Testament, we know there were the Jews and the Gentiles. Again, a, a struggle between two groups. It was racial. Uh, God created the Jews to be a special people of God. He even said, don't associate with the Gentiles because he didn't want the Gentiles to be drawn away. But a certain people groups... And so God kept them so that they would be pure before his sight. So he chose them as a special people. But yet he told his people they need to be a light to the Gentiles around them. 
But what they did is they took that disassociation and they began to call them unclean and then disassociated with them to the point where they would cause racial slurs, biases, and they would be prejudiced and it would be creating discrimination between the two groups. And known to be unclean and not to associate with them, now we get to the New Testament and we see in Acts chapter 10 that now Peter's being confronted because he has a vision. And God brings forth a vision to him, shows him animals, and he, according to the Old Testament, according to the law, he was not to kill these animals or be associated with eating these, anim- eating these animals. And so what happened was he then was told, hey, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. And he said, no, Lord, those are unclean. I cannot touch those animals, and I can't eat from those animal groups. And he's like, what I call clean is clean now. It's no longer unclean. And now God has given him this gospel message that the Jew and the Gentile should be one through the gospel. And Jew and Gentile to be one, not to look at them as unclean anymore, to be equal. But you got to understand the Jew, as the appointed people of God, had a hard time with that. Because as we understand the gospel, we also understand that we're looking at Acts 10, and then we're looking, too, to Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council, as we'll talk about shortly. And so if, if we can turn to the book of Galatians, because we have an episode here that is we need to address today, an episode that discusses about how Paul had to call out Peter, who was the leader of the church, Peter, James, and John, and as he was, he had to confront him on an issue of racism, an issue that was a divide for it wasn't portraying the truth of the gospel. And so as we look at this and we understand We have to ask God to adjust our lens. This cultural lens that we had, the cultural lens that existed with the Jews and the Gentiles had to be adjusted. So let's look at a couple of things here. We need to adjust our cultural lens as we were talking about it and embrace empathy through, and it's the first thing we need to consider is our conscience. There are three things in which we have to consider here. Our conscience starts first. Because with the conscience, it begins in the depths of our being, to understand what's going on here, even with Paul and Peter. Now, as we're looking at this passage in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 of Galatians, there's this battle going on, and it begins at Antioch. Now, just let me give you some backdrop on the Antioch. Now, with the Antioch, it's a major pagan metropolis, the third largest in the Roman Empire, next to Rome and Alexandria. So this is a big city, And we also understand in Acts chapter 11 that Barnabas and Paul were the ones that started this church. They brought forth a people of God, Jews and Gentiles, and discipled them. So as he was discipling them, he was drawing them or strengthening the church. In Acts 11 verse 26, we understand that this is the church where they were called Christians. So here Paul and Barnabas working together in partnership. Barnabas is actually Paul's mentor, and he's the one who's leading this work. Understanding that this is important in the backdrop of Galatians chapter 2. Because as we look at that, we see that Paul goes on and he says this. He goes, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now here is Peter and Peter, James, and John. Peter, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, God whom Jesus called to lead the pack for starting the church. And here God has used Paul to oppose his mentor. Because why? What was going on here? Peter started 
to veer away from the truth. Watch this now, verse 12. It says, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, which he was supposed to because he was given this vision to eat at the table now, that he could eat of the food that he was prohibited not to eat. It was forbidden. He now can eat with the Gentiles. It was an issue of table fellowship, and they came together. So he's eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, the Jews, the circumcision, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So here you have this dilemma. You have Peter, who's the leader, given a vision by God to spend time with the Gentiles to minister to them. Circumcision people come in, which is the Jews who are holding to the law and circumcision, which they were not supposed to because they were Jewish believers. And here was this dilemma. So Peter is now being drawn away. He drew back and separated himself because of fear. So now fear is his factor. Now Jews are priority, the majority. They're ones that God chose first. First the Jew, then the Gentile, right? But now this is not a matter of Peter saying, well, hey, Gentiles, listen, Jews' lives matter too, so let me go over here with the Jews and hang out with them. See, that wasn't what the case was. He wasn't just trying to accommodate them and trying to work with them. He was afraid that he would be excommunicated by his brothers over here in the Jews. So he wasn't saying, hey, Jews' lives matter also. All lives matter. What he was saying was, hey, you know, I don't want to be excommunicated, so I better go over here out of fear. So he was veering off from the truth. God called him to mix it in with the Gentiles. So he fell off. And what did Paul do? Paul goes, I'm going to oppose him. He stood condemned. You know, in the Greek, it's a perfect, perfect tense, which means that God already condemned him. There was no trial. There was no investigation. He was already condemned. Why? Because he got away from the truth. He got away from the vision. God said, wait a minute, I told you to do this. Go spend time with the Gentiles. He goes, but Lord, I'm over here. I need to make sure the Jews are okay. There's a battle going on. And there was a struggle there. His conscience was in question. Not Paul, though. See, when we look at Paul, it was one of the important things that Paul wrote about in all of his writings was the conscience. Because with our conscience, we understand what is right and wrong. And God who gives us a conscience then tells us the conscience that we have in the gospel. We stand up for what is right. We stand up for biblical justice. We stand up for the gospel. We stand up for the Imago Dei. When we know in the depths of our conscience, we're like, no, we can't be silent. We must speak up. Paul's like, I've got to speak up against this, and I will even challenge God's leader over this. That's how bold he was because his conscience was cleared. We look at Acts 24, 16, and says this, so I always take pains to have clear conscience toward God and man, meaning I'm willing to take it because I have to ultimately answer to God. My conscience must be clear. And the clear conscience is that I will oppose anyone who, who comes against the gospel. That's what I love about Paul. Also in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 5, he's telling those whom he, he's obviously ministering to. He says this, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain peoples or persons not to teach any different doctrine, meaning false teachers. Here's the problem. Peter was leaning towards false teaching. And he's speaking against, he's saying you need to speak against those who are teaching falsely. We don't stand for the Imago Dei, for biblical justice, for the gospel. We're falling into false teaching, guys. We got to realize this is serious truth. This is a part of the gospel. 
He goes on, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of my charge, our charge, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. His conscience is cleared when he stands up against false teaching. And that's what Paul's doing in Galatians. He's doing the same. Here's what happens when we don't. Here's when we don't stand for a clear conscience or a good conscience or sincere conscience in our faith. What happens is we start to establish another kind of conscience that is not the truth, that leans towards false teaching. Even Paul warns Timothy of that. He says this, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, false teaching, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. In the Greek, it means taking an iron and actually just pressing it across the brain and just searing at it and just bringing it down to where you can't even think. You don't even know what truth is anymore because you've now become a person who's viewed yourself as a false teacher. You've leaned toward half-truths. So that's what the problem is. We listen to a truth, but it's half-truth. So then our consciences are seared. That's why it's important for us to understand that our consciences must be cleared. By having a clear conscience, our culture lenses are changed, and now we're no longer sympathetic toward people. We're empathetic. Now it's not just being sympathetic and saying, I'm so sorry what you're going through. Now it's like, you know what? What bears your burden bears mine. Now, I'm, 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 what hurts you, I'm going to bear your burden. If you're hurting, I'm going to bear it. If you're struggling, I'm struggling. If you're crying, I'm crying. If you feel like you've been mistreated, then I've been mistreated. We take along this because that's the body of Christ. That's what we need to do. As the body, we have to attach ourselves that someone else's struggle and sin is ours as well. That's bearing our brother's burden. That's a clear conscience. We got to be careful that our consciences are not seared. We need to grab on to a clear conscience. Number two, we need to adjust our cultural lens and embrace empathy through our convictions. Through our convictions. Paul was convicted enough to speak. His conscience was cleared. He spoke up with a conviction, telling them that you're off, that you're way off. He even goes so far as to say this, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. You know, the word hypocritically means joining and playing the part or pretending. Join in pretense, pretending in false leading. See, Peter was leading his Jewish counterparts in the wrong direction by joining them. Instead of leading them to have fellowship with the Gentiles, he demonstrated and affirmed the Judaizers that true Christianity involves grace plus the law. It was heresy. He was misleading them in his behavior, misleading them in doctrine. He was getting them to believe that, yes, you do need to keep the law and have circumcision in order to be a true Christian. Even Acts 15, verse 1 and verse 5, they were in question when they were determining the doctrine. Is it by grace alone or is it by grace plus, plus the law? And they were battling with that. Peter just seemed to say, you know what, you're right. It is grace plus the law. I'll join you. Not only was he a hypocrite in acting and pretending and misleading them, but now he takes the mentor, the one who started the church of Antioch, and he, and he again, he leads them. He, he leads them astray. He leaves Barnabas even was led astray by this hypocrisy. 
Now Barnabas all of a sudden is led away. Actually, in the Greek, it means irrational emotion. So you have Peter who's fearful. You have Barnabas who's fallen into irrational emotion because they were afraid of being excommunicated or questioned by the leadership in the Jerusalem church that wasn't sure about the gospel and sure about the content of the gospel. Now you have Paul standing up with a clear conscience, with strong conviction, saying, you guys are off speaks up against them. He stands up for the justice. He stands up for the Imago Dei. He stands up and saying, you're mistreating Gentiles. God created them. He called them clean. Why are you doing this? And he's saying that you are my mentor. This really hurt Paul. You're my mentor, Barnabas. What happened to you? Barnabas like, oh, man. But here's the thing. Here's the challenge. Are we to fear the Lord or we fear man? Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians when the false teachers were against him and he was trying to encourage the Christians around him. He says at the Bema Seat, he talks about it with judgment at the Bema Seat. So whether we are at home or away, we can make it our aim to please him, God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, the Bema Seat of Christ. Therefore, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So when we fear God, we persuade others. He wasn't fearing the Lord. He was fearing man. He wasn't persuading anyone. The only way he was persuading was he was persuading the Gentiles to believe that you must have grace plus the law. He was misleading. That's how he was persuading by fearing man. God is saying, you fear the Lord, we need to persuade others. What? Toward the Lord. But, he says on, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. (laughs) So now you have conscience, you have convictions, and the convictions now, the lastly, conduct. We need to adjust our cultural lens and embrace empathy through our conduct. It's not enough to just say you're sorry. It's not enough to be sympathetic. We have to be empathetic towards this cause. Paul was encouraging Peter to do the same. He went on to say this. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? Let me stop here. Was not in step in the Greek means where we get the word orthopedics. Isn't that interesting? We mean when we're off and our frame is off and our back is off or when our, you know, our feet and our, all of it's off, we need to be realigned. What do we need to be realigned to? The truth of the word of God. We need to be realigned to biblical justice. We need to be realigned to the Imago Dei. What we need to know is when we're off, when you go to a chiropractor because your back's off, he realigns you, she realigns you to your spine to send the messages so you won't have pain. Realigns your frame. We need to get back to being realigned to the truth when we're off. Paul is calling Peter saying, you're off. Barnabas, you're off. You need to get back straight. You're not walking straight. You're not seeing the lens of Christian lens. You're still sitting on your cultural lens. You're still sitting on fear and emotion. What happens when we sit in fear and emotion? It's a challenge. What's the fear today in our racial climate? Fear is that we're afraid of racial dominance. Black people just want racial equality. 
That's our fear, and it's just the same with the Jews. They did not want the Gentiles to take over. They were afraid that if there's too many of them, then they would take over, and we would not be priority and majority anymore. There's that fear that goes on, the emotion, the irrational emotion that drives our narrative every day on social media, wherever we go. We're driven by fear. We're driven by emotional, you know, uh, irrational emotion. And what happens is just like Barnabas and Peter, we too could fall into that trap. And we don't even realize it. It happens, all of us, it happens to all. But it happens on both sides. It's not just whites, it's blacks, it's all races. It happens. Police officers the, pro- police officers, the problem? No. <laughs> all lives matter? Yes. When a certain life is not being treated properly, we as the body of Christ must be empathetic and come alongside of them. And bear their burdens. If their house is on fire, we get hoses, we get the water, and we try to put it out. But then we sit down with them and care for them and minister to them. It's not time to say all lives matter. Peter wasn't running to say, hey, I'm going over to the Jews because they matter. He was going over there because he was afraid. We can't make that statement because sometimes we're afraid of racial dominance. These are real discussions. We've got to deal with them. We are the body of Christ, and we've got to get ahead of this. We've got to get ahead of the nation. We've got to get ahead of all this. You know, I love Dr. Tony Evans because he said the problem that it started with, it was the church. He came right out and said it was the church that started this back at time of slavery. He goes, now it's the church that needs to get ahead of it and be the solution. He goes, Ab- above all. But he wrote something that I really appreciate because he has a balanced perspective. He wrote wrote this in saying in his book, Oneness Embraced, through the eyes of Tony Evans, which he was discriminated often, even as a professor, as a pastor, often there were certain white churches that wouldn't let him in because he was black. He he shares it in the stories here. But he's always balanced, always gospel-centered, and he makes these comments, and I love what he says. Let me read it to you. It says, America is an individual society, individualistic society. In many ways, this is a positive quality. However... When it comes to addressing corporate sins, it can prove to be a hindrance. Christian whites have historically benefited from the systematic effects of racism, and yet those benefits are often so far removed from direct personal cause that a need for repentance in the area of racial reconciliation often goes unnoticed. But whether or not personal involvement in the sin has taken place or to what degree it exists is irrelevant to the biblical model given to us for corporate repentance when national sins have led to national effects. And the examples he uses is Daniel and Nehemiah as the leaders that stood forth and said, we must repent. That's why we're having prayer. Whether we need to or not need to, it really doesn't matter. We just need to repent and put ourselves out there and say, God, start with us. We will go before the Bema seat of Christ and no one else is gonna be by our side. We have to decide to be the church and stand up and make a difference. And we can. That's what we're called to. He even goes on to say this. There's no one to blame because he even goes on to say this. Likewise, forgiveness is often not acknowledged or granted on behalf of those who have been affected by the sting of historical abuse, abuses and institutional racism due to the corporate nature of the sin. Yes, we as African Americans must apply the biblical principle of personal forgiveness 
modeled by Christ, Ephesians 4.32, which will then release us from holding our white brothers and sisters hostage to any guilt or obligation toward us on a personal level. While we have every right to seek justice and resist ongoing manifestations of racism, we must also own our responsibility for personal development and progress through not seeking to create or take advantage of any presence of white guilt. I mean, he's saying it so well. He's saying it as an African-American, a prominent, prolific voice in the evangelical church. And he stands to say, it needs to be done. We need to stand forth for what is right here. Paul goes on and says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. You know, earthly wisdom, the word earthly is flesh in Greek, sarkos. So what he's saying is that earthly wisdom is of the flesh. When we fear, when we have irrational emotion that leads us, it's the flesh. Sometimes what happens is that we allow our political lens to determine who we are in Christ. And we can't do that anymore. That's earthly wisdom. We've got to stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ, stand on the Imago Dei, stand on biblical justice, and allow that to direct our lens. We need a Christian biblical lens. No longer can we allow it to hijack us or even try to captivate us in any way. We must stand on that lens. Let me ask you these questions that have challenged myself. And this is tough, but I'm going to ask you because I want to challenge you because I'm challenging myself. How much is your Christianity based on a political lens? How does this affect how you view people? Has it changed your view of your brother or sister in Christ? See, the adjustment has been made through Christ. We need a Christian lens. You know, Paul went on in verses 15 all the way through 19 before he hit 20. And he just said, we cannot be justified by the law because the law only shows me to be a sinner. Therefore, if I can't be justified by works of the law, there's only one through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 20, he says this, which we all know very well. It's a common verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's saying, my old lens has been replaced. I've been crucified with Christ. I have a Christian lens. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's got to be a Christian lens. We've got to be challenged on this. We can't allow political lenses anymore to dominate us. We've got to ask God to change us. It's, it's been personal for me. I've got to be honest. Let me be exposed. I've had to go through this and realize my political lens was overtaking me. I was starting to view people differently because of my politics. I'm being honest with you, and I'm asking God to change that in me. I failed, and it was a fight in me. You, you wouldn't know it because I would have never shared it, but God is really changing my heart towards this. I'm not allowing my political lens to determine what the imago Dei is, nor biblical justice. I will stand on the word of God. I will stand on the word of God. 
I hope that God will continue to challenge your conscience, your convictions, and hopefully it'll change all of our conduct towards it. Here's change. Change is necessary for, the, for progress. Challenge your lens by expanding it. I asked God to challenge mine, and he's expanding it. My wife and I have been challenged. It's been a good challenge. Two, confront any stereotypes, biases, or prejudice through Christian lens in you or in others. I'm doing the same. No matter how close I've been toward other cultures, I'm doing the same. This is a very challenging, challenging discussion, very uncomfortable. I applaud you for hanging in here right now because we've got to get through it. This is something we're going to be dealing with for a long time because sin is sin, and we've got to deal with it. This is, the gospel is truly at stake for the, for the church. We've got to stand. Whether you experienced it or not, it's time to bear our brother's burdens, our sister's burdens. It's time to stand up for biblical justice in the Imago Dei. Let me pray for you guys, and then I'll, I'll dismiss you guys. Father, thank you. These have been uncomfortable discussions, but sin is always uncomfortable. Lord, it doesn't matter. This is uh, no different of a sin in our lives than any other. We have to be willing to face what's in our lives. But God, thank you for the hope that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you don't blame us. Thank you that you grieve over racism more than any other person could ever imagine. If a black person right now is struggling, you grieve over it more than that black person. If a white person is struggling, you grieve over it more than that white person. If it's a non-black or any other culture, it's cultures. You grieve. And Lord, I thank you that we see even with the Jew and the Gentile, there is a great deal of racial struggle, racial diversity, but racial struggle. And Lord, we just pray that you would challenge each one of us to look at ourselves to ask you to change us, to expand our lenses, to help us to confront these biases in our lives and ask that, Lord, you would challenge us the same to move forward for your kingdom's sake. God, continue to do that work in us. We love you. We surrender our lives to you, and we pray that you would continue to do that work in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us at Facebook Live. We appreciate you guys. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. We'll see you next week on Sunday.